Welcome, welcome, welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. Like I said earlier, or like someone said earlier, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to see y'all here. Uh, it's great to be here this morning, and uh, if you are a guest, welcome. I would love to say hi to you at the door, so I'll be just under that exit sign in the back at the end of the service. Come say hi, and make sure you grab a welcome gift. Be on your way out. It is a way in which we uh, uh, celebrate that you joined us this morning. It's also a way in which we support local businesses because there are gifts in there that we buy from local businesses. So if you take that gift, you give us a reason to pay more money to local businesses so we can replenish it. And we are all about our community thriving so and local businesses thriving. So help us do that if you've never gotten a welcome gift before. And if you have and I don't remember, no one's going to hold it against you. No one's going to hold it against you. So glad you're here. Every once in a while when I am uh, on the phone with my mom, uh, as we're getting ready to, to sort of hang up and we're in the sort of goodbye routine, which for some reason takes a number of minutes for us to get off the phone, uh, she'll utter a phrase that will immediately transport me back. It's two words. She will say, later gator. Uh, it's short for see you later alligator. And it is part of the sort of a bedtime routine that she and I had uh, when I was growing up. Uh, it's gotten shortened over the years, but uh, when she utters that phrase, I'm immediately transported back to those evenings and all the great times we had reading books and just talking and catching up before I went to sleep. And when she says that phrase, and she doesn't say it very often, but it's with a, a tone of tenderness in her voice. It's a reminder that no matter how old I get, I'm still her son. I'm still her boy. They're just two words, but they are so much more than words. They evoke a time. They evoke a relationship. Words, images, smells, sights, sounds can sometimes do that for all of us. Can you think of things that do that for you? Words, sights, sounds, smells that evoke something for you, that transport you to a particular time, a particular season. Sometimes these things aren't just exclusive to us as individuals. Sometimes there are things that are communal, cultural, and social that evoke something for a plurality of people. That's why when I say four score and seven years ago, some of us don't think of 87 years, in case you were wondering what a score is. I had to look that up, right? We think of a particular time in our country's history and all of the things that were attached to that, even though, unless some of you look particularly well or have aged particularly nicely, none of us were around. And yet those words evoke something for us. I have a dream, evokes a very specific type of dream and longing and longing. That's one small step for man. Many of us can even finish the phrase. It evokes a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. If you were alive during that time and were in front of your TV at that particular moment, it evokes something very specific. And it evokes a sense that we can do what we set our mind to. We can put our intellect together. We can put our creativity together. And we can do things that no one ever thought possible before. We can quite literally reach for the stars. 
for some of us, this image, and even that date, 9-11, evokes a particular type of pain, mourning, but also a sense that we were brought together as a nation collectively during that time, both in pain and in longing for things to be better. For some, most recently, the phrase, I can't breathe, evoked something way more than a particular moment. It gave words to a particular sense of grief that they had been feeling for decades and even centuries. It became much more than a phrase for a particular moment. Short phrases, images, sights, sounds can sometimes carry way more than what is apparent on the surface. And that is certainly true in the passage that we read earlier and in the accompanying parallels in the other gospel narratives. The scene of Palm Sunday, the scene that welcomes Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem for a week that ends with his death on the cross evokes so much more than what is on the surface. The gospel writer Luke, in his recording of this event, records a particular phrase that the gathered crowd cries out. They say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The people of Israel had been living under the, the rule of the Roman Empire. It was just the latest in a string of, of powers, of global powers or regional powers that were dominating them. And that their rule had been oppressive. They'd lost their sovereignty as a nation centuries before as they turned their back on God. And the crowd of people that was gathered on that day to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem was longing for a day in which things would change. They were longing for a day in which they would be liberated, a day when someone would come in the name of the Lord and overthrow this rule that was imposed upon them and inaugurate something new, something different, something that would free them from this reality that they were living, a reality that felt fractured. Their relationship with God was fractured. There had been no clear word from the Lord in centuries. Their relationship with each other as a nation and with the communities around them was fractured. They were, there, there were lots of different groups competing with each other about who could be correctly faithful to the Lord. They were fractured. Their relationship to other nations was clearly fractured. Their relationship with the world was fractured. And so they welcomed Jesus in the hopes that he might be the one that he might be that king that they were waiting for. And by week's end, they felt that they were wrong. And yet, and yet in that phrase that they use, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, they are evoking a psalm. They are evoking so much more than what is apparent at the surface and so much more that made them actually more right in what they were saying than what they ever imagined than even what they were feeling. They were more right than they knew. And today we're going to be looking at that psalm. We're going to be studying that psalm for just a moment, the, the psalm that they are evoking, because even though we are centuries removed from that crowd welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, even though we are half a world away, what was true then is true now. Our world still seems fractured. Our lives still feel fractured. Our relationships still feel fractured. We've been talking about that 
for the last few weeks during our fractured series. And what was true then uh, is also true now, which is that our fractured lives and our fractured world long for mending. Because they weren't made to be fractured. We long for mending. We long to be restored. And the psalm that they evoke gives us a glimpse into how God was doing it in the first century and how God is doing it even to this very day. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me? We're going to be in Psalm 118. We're going to read from verse 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip down to verse 19 through 29. And if you don't happen to have a Bible, don't worry, because we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. But here we go with Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 29. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. Open the gates, open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks. For you answered me, you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is good, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is thought to have been a psalm that was penned about and sung to commemorate victory in battle and to welcome the returning army with the king at his head into Jerusalem. So it makes sense that those folks in the first century would have sung it, would have evoked it, would have called out to it as they welcomed Jesus. And yet, Jesus has no army with him. He brings no army in his stead. Nor is he on a horse that one would ride into battle. He is on a donkey. There are none of the signs of conquering as he enters in Jerusalem. He, is not, he does not look like much of a conqueror, and yet he is going to win a victory. He is going to win a victory. One of the things that jumps out as you read this psalm is the repetition of the phrase, his love endures forever. It, it bookends the psalm. It's at the start and at the end, in the first verses and in the last. And, and for those who study psalms, who talk about how to interpret psalms, they would say that this points to the fact that that phrase is key to the theme of the psalm. It is essential to how the psalm develops and what the psalm is pointing to. And in case we were in any danger of missing it, the composer of the psalm repeats it four times in the first four verses. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. See, this is the thing that the composer of the psalm wants people to remember. He wants them to grab hold of it. He wants them to own it. And he wants them to repeat it 
as they celebrate a victory. When they celebrate victory, he wants them to remember that God's love endures forever. Now, this love is not sentimentality. This love is not affection. Not that there's anything wrong with a sentimental love. Not that there's anything wrong with affectionate love. The word that gets translated here as love is a Hebrew word that is pronounced hesed. And if you were to look at a Hebrew dictionary, a Hebrew to English dictionary, under hesed, you would have half a dictionary column's worth of content to explain what hesed means. It is much deeper than what we sometimes understand as love. It is, uh, if, if I were to summarize it, the word I like to summarize it is committed loyalty, covenant faithfulness. And even those things fall short of explaining what hesed is. It's this idea that you are so committed to someone that you are willing to risk your own well-being in order to protect them. You are so committed to someone that you are willing to risk your own well-being in order to protect someone when they are in danger, when something is in, when they are in need. And it is the word that is often used to describe God's attitude, God's posture towards God's people. Sometimes it gets translated as loving kindness in some of our Bibles. Sometimes it is love. Sometimes it's even mercy. It describes God's posture towards his people. I had a, uh, someone I knew who told a story to understand Hesed. He would say, desert people, which these people are, desert people understand Hesed. Here's what they mean when they say Hesed. He says, a man will be in the desert. He is part of a clan. And another man will be wandering through the desert to come towards him. And will say, friend, I need a hundred sheep in order to survive. And the man will look and see that this wandering stranger has no one around him, has nothing at his disposal. And in the desert, to be alone and to be without resources is to be dead, is to die. And this man sees that he has a hundred sheep. It's all he has. But in order that this man would not die, he will give him his hundred sheep. Even though he puts himself at risk, he will give him his hundred sheep. That's Hesed. He will do it because he knows that he is tethered to a community that will care for him when he's in need. He will do it to demonstrate to this man that he cannot continue on alone. He needs to join a community of people. He will do it in the hopes that that man will join the community, his community, his clan. He will do it in the hopes that one day, should that man encounter another stranger who is in need, he will show hesed to him as well and save another person's life. That's hesed. That's hesed. That's what we mean here when we say love. The writer John in the Gospels tells a story about a Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and they're having a conversation. And John writes, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whomever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that's written in Greek. It was probably spoken in Aramaic, but it was said about a man who has Hebrew in his belly. That love is chesed. 
That's what God does for humanity. God shows hesed to humanity. God gives his one and only son because humanity needed, the world needed, needed that salvation, needed that son to be given. And God risks it all in the hope that humanity would join in, would join into the family of God, would be cared for forever because alone we can't do it. Because we can't solve the problem on our own. God shows hesed to us. It is a powerful word. It is a powerful value. It is so significant that when I found out about hesed and I saw it all around the Bible, I thought, I want to live by this value. I never want to forget it. So I etched it on my body. And I have it where I can see it. So that whenever I have the opportunity to do good for someone, whenever someone in need comes to me, I can remember that God has shown chesed to me. And I want to show chesed to others. And that is what fuels God sending his only son. It's what guides Jesus as he heads to the cross. It's what those crying out to him as he enters into Jerusalem are evoking even though they don't realize it. Even though they don't realize it. See, they were expecting things to be made right. But they were expecting things to be made right by might. By a particular type of strength. They were expecting fractures to to be mended with a particular type of power that would inevitably have caused fractures in others. It would never have been able to fully mend. But God's mending work is fueled by a different kind of power. God's mending work is fueled by powerful love. It is a love that is powerful. We may not often think about love as powerful because we have a far too limited view of love. But that kind of commitment, that kind of faithfulness, that kind of loyalty, that kind of willingness to sacrifice has tremendous potential to affect change, to defy the odds, to to overcome obstacles, to rescue in even the most desperate situations, to mend the fractures that feel unmendable. That powerful love has the capacity to do that. And there are folks who know that and live by that. Some of the most defying the odds situations in recent history have love, powerful love as the fuel. The work that Dr. King did in the civil rights movement, fueled by love. The work that Mother Teresa did uh, with poor people in India, fueled by love. The work that Desmond Tutu did in South Africa to bring together people who had been enemies and save a country from all-out collapse the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was fueled by love. And when you read their works and when you read other people talking who spent time with them, you see love is at the core. A powerful love. A love that can mend even what feels unmendable. So I wonder, friend who is sitting here, what do you put your hope in for the mending work that needs to happen in your life? and in your relationships, and in the world around you, what needs to happen in your world, what fuels the mending work? Is it might? Is it strength? Is it accomplishment? Is it what you can do? Is it what you can produce? Is it how good you think you can be? None of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they are insufficient. 
They are insufficient to mend the fractures of our lives, the fractures of our relationships, the fractures in our world. Only the powerful love of God can do that. Put your hope in that. Put your hope in that. Now, there are two other phrases in the psalm that I want to highlight um, as they connect to what was going on in Palm Sunday. The first is this. You have become my salvation. You have become my salvation. This God, this Lord, whose love endures forever, has become the psalmist's salvation. There is a way in which the psalmist is expressing that he is receiving that from the Lord. The powerful love has saved him. And this salvation conjures up deliverance, conjures up aid, conjures up victory, conjures up prosperity. And when you, you get this sense as you hear these words that that is everything that this psalmist, that the writer might have needed. When you hear that, those phrases, he is delivered, he has received aid, he has received prosperity, he has been prospered, he has achieved victory. It sounds like the opposite of being fractured. He has received everything he needs. Wholeness, well-being, and he owns it. He declares it. He embraces it. There's a new Marvel show out called Moon Knight. And in Moon Knight, there is this struggle between one character facing these, this adversity and trying to overcome it by himself and this other entity that is telling him, you can defeat this if you embrace what I have to offer you. If you embrace it, you can achieve victory. And this man, he knows it's true, and yet he has this struggle. He wants to do it himself. He knows that that is salvation for him in this moment. But he has this struggle because he wants to see if he can do it himself. He's afraid of what might happen if he owns what is being offered to him. And he gets his rear end kicked for just a little bit until he finally comes to the point where he yields and the victory comes. That God is salvation, that God brings forth salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross is, is, is true. But there has to come a point in time where we make it our own, where we yield, where we embrace it, where we give up on our attempts to try to make it on our own, to try to save ourselves, to try to achieve what is unachievable by our own strength, we all must come to a point where we yield and we own and we say with the psalmist, you have become my salvation. Where we admit and own that we can only be mended through the powerful love of God. We can't mend ourselves, folks. And we are all fractured. We all have cracks in our souls, cracks in our lives, cracks in our relationships, and we cannot mend them ourselves. It is not enough to acknowledge that God's mending work is fueled by powerful love. There must come a point where we yield to that reality in our own lives and own it for ourselves and accept his mending work in us, his mending work in us. See, we are put together put back together not by our ability or by our accomplishments, but by the powerful love of God. And I want to acknowledge that it's hard for some of us. And some of us struggle with it. And you may continue to struggle with it, but hear me say it now in the hopes that one day you will believe it 
We can't mend ourselves. There will never be a day where we will know enough or be mature enough or be capable enough or be strong enough or be emotionally and mentally healthy enough to mend ourselves. We need the powerful love of God. Have you allowed God's powerful love to mend you? Are you carrying around an excess of fractures in your soul, in your heart, in yourself, because you have tried to mend them by yourself and all that happens is they get ripped apart again and the cracks go deeper and the relationships are even more affected? It's time to yield and own the mending work of the powerful love of God. Another thing that the psalm says is that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This cornerstone, you see cornerstones around. It's that place in buildings that has the established or built by or dedicated at this time. It is a particular type of stone, a first stone, a foundation stone, a setting stone, an orienting stone. It orients the entire construction and the weight of the entire edifice rests on the cornerstone. It carries the weight of it all. By week's end, Jesus will appear rejected. He will appear discarded. He will be abandoned by many of those closest to him. He will die a criminal's death. He will be buried in a borrowed tomb. He will seem like he is nothing, worthless. And then he rises from the dead. And as he rises from the dead, he becomes the one on whom all mending depends and on whom all mending is built on. And what is built on the foundation of Jesus' death and resurrection lasts. Lasts. What is mended with the powerful love of God is ultimately unbreakable. I say ultimately. Because sometimes we do good building on the powerful love of God. And then we take a season where it feels like we take a sledgehammer to our own lives. We have times where we make mistakes and things collapse. And what building on the cornerstone promises us is that ultimately those efforts will not be for naught. Because what is built on the cornerstone of the powerful love of God and the mending work of Jesus lasts. Lasts. It is ultimately unbreakable. I love that the powerful love of God allows for my boneheadedness. That may apply to some of you as well. I don't know. Some of you are being elbowed right now. I'm not going to look at any people. I love that even though sometimes it feels like life crumbles, it never fully crumbles because the cornerstone remains. The cornerstone remains It may feel like it crumbles, but we never fully crumble when we're building on the powerful love of God. The powerful love of God is, has always been, and will remain undefeatable. Undefeatable. God has invited us into his mending project by being mended ourselves, by being part of mending our world through his powerful love. And so what is our response as we remember those who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that morning? Well, we hearken back to that. Our response, much like theirs, though with a little bit more understanding, is to worship. Our response is to worship. 
our response is to worship. Uh, and we'll get the slides back up in just a second. The idea of worshiping is all throughout the Psalms. When you read it, there is worshiping. There is thanksgiving. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his love endures forever. It says, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Thanksgiving and worship are exercises in, of faith and hope that the mending will become. Actually, could you take me back two slides? One more, forward now. There we go. There are two things that Thanksgiving and worship do for us. The first is that Thanksgiving and worship are acts of defiance in a fractured world. There are two reasons why we worship in response to Jesus entering into Jerusalem, why we worship and give thanks in response to the fact that God's powerful love is mending our world. The first is that it's an act of defiance. Because our fractured world... Our fractured realities, in our fractured world, in our fractured realities, to be thankful and to worship feels antithetical to fracturing. It feels like we should be rolling up our sleeves and getting to tough work. That we should be owning the pain and living in it. That we should be fighting and striving. Thanksgiving and worship say to the world in defiance, no, there is something more. The fracturing is not the definition of who we are and what life will be like. It is an act of defiance in a fractured world. Let me see if I can advance them myself. Advance me one more. Oh, yeah, there we go. And, and, they're an act of hope. Thanksgiving and worship is not just us ignoring that there is a fractured world. It's not what it is. It's not ignoring that there's a fractured world. It's not pretending that there aren't, that there aren't fractures, but it is an exercise in hope. Because even though we acknowledge that the fractures are there, even though we stand in defiance of the fractures that are there, we believe that the fractures will be mended. We believe it. We have hope in it. We have hope that the reality that we were not made to be fractured will come true and is coming true now and forevermore. The last year of my life, I have felt fracturing in our world. I felt fracturing in my life. Some of you know that there's been fracturing going on in my family. It would have been very easy and it has been very tempting to sink deep into the fracturing, to sink deep into the pain. And yet in the midst of the reality of the fracturing all around me, I have seen signs of God's goodness, of God's love, of God's salvation. I have seen it and it has been undeniable in your being with me, in your being present for me, in your being family and loving me. I've seen it in friends from all across the country who have reached out and called me in moments, not knowing anything that's going on, just saying, I felt like I should call you today. I felt like I should pray for you. Tell me, how can I pray for you? Time and time again, in the midst of fracturing, God's powerful love has shown up and I have felt drawn to worship. Drawn to give thanks. And you might think it is antithetical to be grateful in the midst of all the crud. And yet, I have felt it as an act of defiance and I have felt it as an exercise of hope. It has kept me buoyant 
There have been many of you that have commented, uh, uh, and, and I know some of you don't know the details, and I'm not going to give them now for the sake of brevity, but some of you have commented on how I face this. Uh, and I want to say, it is not me. It has not been me. It has been what God has done in and through me, thanks to you and thanks to everyone around. It has been through his invitation to worship and give thanks. It has been an exercise in hope. So friends, I want to invite you. I don't know what fractures you're going through. I don't know what fractures you're experiencing or living into, which ones are weighing on you. I want to invite you to worship as an act of defiance that the fracture does not need to define you or own you and as an exercise in hope that the God who can mend every fracture, the God on whom what is unbreakable will be built, will mend your fracture mend the fracture in your life. Worship and give thanks, not out of ignorance, but out of hope, out of faith, out of belief, out of trust. In the first century, the people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with worship, not knowing what was going to be accomplished. We can worship him today, knowing what has been accomplished, not knowing what might be accomplished in our lives, but believing that something will be accomplished, that the mending will happen, and that it will be good. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we worship you. We worship you for you are good and your love endures forever. You are good and your love endures forever. You are good and your love endures forever. You are our salvation. You are the cornerstone. Lord, may we worship you in the midst of fractures, in the midst of pain, holding on to hope and knowing that you will mend, that you will finish the work you have started in us. In Jesus' name, amen.